0: Welcome to River of Life's Wednesday night podcast with Derek Gray. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to visit River of Life Church this Wednesday at 7 p.m. in Crawfordville. Visit rolcrawfordville.com for service times and directions. That's rolcrawfordville.com. Now, let's join Derek as he teaches from the Word of God.
1: hey we're going we're going to get started here just a couple minutes earlier we want to have some prayer um, before the uh before the youtube stream uh, gets started hey uh, right now as far as we know there's about eleven families i think pastor henry told me that have covid uh, in the church uh, the good news is they're all home nobody's hospitalized uh, uh, i know uh, uh, renee's daddy frog i think is he came home today right so uh, he's really struggling with it. We need to remember him. And then Priscilla. Um, y'all might have noticed Priscilla wasn't here on Sunday. She's got it. She's, I think she's okay, uh, but she'll be out. She was out this past Sunday. She'll be out uh, this Sunday as well. So uh, a lot of families having to quarantine and do different things. And so if we can, let's just uh, let's take a moment here before we begin to, to have some prayer for them. Father, we thank you, Lord, uh, that we are uh, we're still in this world. Uh, we still get sick. Things still happen to us, accidents and, and, and things like that, God. That's, we're never promised deliverance. Uh, what we are promised is that you'll never leave us and you'll never forsake us. And so, God, we thank you for that. We thank you for these uh, members of our family these, and, and, and for these faithful men and women of God. And, God, they're going through a time right now where they've got to be away from their family, away from their church family. God, I pray that you would touch them. I pray that this thing will go away quickly. It will not be serious in any of their lives. I pray, God, that you would just touch them, strengthen them. Father, I even pray that in this time where they've got to maybe be at home and, and, and more isolated, that, God, you'll use this time especially to renew them spiritually that God, because they may be away from us, but they're never away from you. So God, be with them, touch them. Uh, God, just, just watch over this family, protect us. God, we lean on you and your will, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. All righty, if you got your Bibles and you want to follow along tonight, uh, it won't be hard, because uh, we're looking at one verse, so uh, you don't have to worry about that. Romans nine thirteen. 13, uh, the title of our lesson is Jacob and Esau. Now, If you were with us last week, you already know what this verse says, and you already know that this is not an easy verse. You already know it's going to be hard, Uh, it's difficult, it's controversial, you guys already already know that. So I'm going to start off tonight a little bit different. I want to read a scripture out of James chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. And this is James speaking, and this is what he says. He says, "Brothers." not many of you should be a teacher. Not many of you should become teachers. Now, that is a really interesting statement to me, because you know, elsewhere in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, when it comes to spiritual gifts, what does he tell us to do? Anybody know? Desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy or proclaim the Word of God. So, Paul tells us to desire spiritual gifts, but here's James saying, but not this one. <laughs> not many of you need to become teachers. Now, why would he say that? Well, he gives us two reasons. He says the first one is this, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. The first thing he says, if you're a teacher, that means you get up and you expound the word of God. You you have influence over people because you're sitting there and you're telling them this is what the word of God means. And so you influence them to believe or maybe to put it another way, you influence people how to believe about certain things. Now, with that comes great responsibility, but with that also comes great accountability. You will be judged by what you teach. So he said, remember that now he goes on and gives another reason. And this one is really disconcerting. Watch what he says. For, and by the way, that's a connecting word. It means because. Because we all stumble in many ways. Remember, he's still talking about teaching. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. And let me see what he's saying here. This is what he's saying. You're not perfect. You're not perfect. Only a perfect person can control what comes out of their mouth perfectly. In other words, you're not perfect, and you're going to make mistakes. You're going to say things that you shouldn't say. Things are going to come out of your mouth that shouldn't come out of your mouth. Now you see why he says, don't be a teacher, because teaching is a double-edged sword. On one hand, you're not perfect. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to say things you shouldn't say. On the other hand, you're going to be held accountable for that. You're going to be held accountable for it. You're going to be judged stricter. So anybody that comes to teaching and they take it seriously, you come with a level of fear and trembling. Because you know what you teach tonight, you will stand before God one day and you will answer for this. So anybody that's a real teacher, listen, there was times where I taught classes and I just did it out of duty. I did it just because somebody had to do it. I don't do that anymore. I take it very, very seriously. Now, you may say, well, why are you telling us all that? Because tonight, we come to a very hard part of Scripture. Very hard part. And I'm not perfect. I am far from perfect. But I want you to know that I don't have any kind of agenda. I don't come in here trying to... It ain't about me being right. It's about one thing, and it's about truth. It's about making sure that we rightly divide the word of truth. I made a promise to God a long time ago that uh, I would only teach what I see. I wouldn't, even if I don't like it, I will still teach exactly what I see in the Word of God. I won't give my opinion. It's not about what I think is right or wrong or anything like that. I will just teach what's in the Bible. And I, I tell you, I'm going to tell you this if Jesus was sitting right there on that front row, I wouldn't change a word of what I'm about to say tonight. Not one word. Because you know what? He is here. And He's taking notes. <laughs> and I will be accountable. So at the end of the day, whether it's Pastor Henry or Brother Bill or whoever it is, be honest, we teach to an audience of one. You teach to an audience of one. There is one who will be your judge. He is the one you answer to. So when you walk off a stage and you've been teaching, or you walk off a stage and you've been preaching, some people may like you and some people may not like you. At the end of the day, it's about what does he think? What does he think? Oh yeah, I made one more promise to God years ago. If I'm gonna make a mistake, I'm gonna give him too much credit. And I I'll, I'll leave it to you. Do you even think that's possible? Do you think it's possible to give God too much credit? Well, we'll see here tonight, right? Let's okay. Let's get back to Romans 9. I don't even know why I threw all that in there. I just wanted to share my heart with you, right? It ain't easy sometimes. It's not easy sometimes. Um, but what we all do is we just try to... I know I'm not perfect. I know I'll make mistakes. But I try to get as close to the truth as I possibly can with everything in me because I know that one day I will be accountable for that. Now, let's turn to Romans 9. Let's take a quick review and see what brought us up to verse 13. What is Romans 9 about? We learned last week that Israel is God's chosen people. That is in Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7. And they are given unparalleled privileges. They hear things that nobody else heard. They saw things with their eyes that no other people saw. They experience God in ways that other people groups could only dream about. But in spite of all of that, they are accursed, cut off from God, and they are eternally lost. That's verses 1 through 5. Now, what this does, this creates a crisis for Paul, but more importantly, for you and me. Because it seems possible, just seems possible, that maybe God didn't keep His promises to Israel. And the problem is, if He didn't keep His promises to to the Jews, then how can you and I ever know? How could we ever have any assurance? How could we ever have any confidence that He's going to keep His promises to you and I? So what is at stake in Romans 9 is these incredible promises that He gave us in Romans 8. So this is what Romans 9 is all about. It is written to answer this question, has God's word failed? Has it failed? And Paul answers that question in verse 6. Right off the bat, he lays out the problem in verses 1 through 5, and in verse 6 he says this, no, no, it is not as though God's word has failed. Now, what's his reasoning? His reasoning is that just because you are an ethnic Jew, Just because you have the lineage and the bloodline of Abraham flowing through your veins, that does not make you a true child of God. doesn't make you a true Israelite or a true Jew or a true son of Abraham. Now, listen, it's just like America, right? Think about it this way. I've heard America referred to as a Christian nation. And maybe somebody on the other side of the world looks at America and thinks, wow, everybody in America is a Christian, and In fact, by the way, still a, a large majority of people in America, 70%, 75%, 80%, still identify as Christian. But you and I know the truth, right? The vast majority of America is lost. The vast majority. I don't care what you call this, this nation. The vast majority of people are cursed and cut off from God. But inside America, in every state, in every county, in every little town, there's a remnant there's a remnant. There's a subset of people, a people within a people, and these are the children of God. These are the believers. These are what Paul calls the children of promise, the, the true sons and daughters of Abraham. Well, Paul is saying the exact same thing was true in Israel. They were a chosen nation, a chosen people, but the fact is the majority of them have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Where does he get this idea of a people within a people? Well, he gets it from two illustrations that he makes. The first one we used last week, we saw, was Isaac and Ishmael. Romans 9, 7 says this, Not all are children of Abraham just because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, you remember... The story, right? You've got two brothers, you've got Ishmael and Isaac. They're separated by 13 years. They have different mothers, but they are both sons, physical sons of Abraham. But Ishmael, the older, got, uh, Paul calls him a child of the flesh. He is what you produce that only men can produce. But Isaac, on the other hand, is a miracle. You see, his mother was barren for all of her life. Now she's, in, she's passed into menopause or past menopause. Her childbearing years are completely over. I mean, it is impossible for her to have a child, but she does. Why? Because God intervenes. God steps in and produces a child that only God can produce. And Paul calls him the child of promise. Now, in verse 8, Paul tells us this verse. Now listen, I flagged it. This is important. We're going to come back to this later tonight, but this is important. Paul says, this means it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. Now, I said last week, Paul just made a jump. He's not just talking about two boys, two sons of Abraham anymore. He's talking about unbelievers and believers. He's talking about people of flesh, and he's talking about people of the Spirit. He's talking about children of the flesh and children of the promise. That's what he's talking about. All right. Now, so what Paul sees in the birth of Isaac is how every spiritual child of God comes into being. You're not a child of God because you are a, you're an ethnic Jew. You're not a child of God because you're. Uh, You're born into the Rockefeller family. You're not a child of God because of your race or your DNA or your genetics or your nationality or your parents or your birth order or, or any physical trait or attribute or anything like that. You see, men can only produce children of the flesh. God alone creates children of promise. That's his first example. Then he goes on to give a second one. Once again, two brothers in the Old Testament, Jacob and Esau. And Paul uses this illustration to basically do away with any human differences that would constrain God to choose one boy or the other. Let's read verses 10 through 12. And Paul says, not only so... Now, watch what he says. Not only was Isaac and Ishmael an example of a people within a people... But this is another example, he says, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and they'd done nothing either good or bad. So here's the difference, right? They're not born yet; they're still in the womb. They, they've not done, created any; they've not done anything good that God would make God choose them. They've not done anything bad to make God reject them. They got the same mother and the same father. He says this: she was told the older will serve the younger. Why, Paul? In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, because of Him who calls. So once again, it's not their behavior, it's not their parents, it's not their birth order, it's not their—it's not even their faith. They don't have any faith. Hadn't been born yet. Hadn't heard anything to believe in. Hadn't done anything good or bad. And God makes the choice. The choice is what we call unconditional. In other words, it's not conditioned upon anything they are, anything they have done, anything they will do. It's just God. Now, by the way, God has reasons. The Bible talks all the time about the purposes of God. God always has a reason for what he's doing. He just doesn't feel here like telling us what exactly uh, it is. So in the first example, we see God creates children of promise. Here we see God chooses children of promise. Now that brought us up to verse 12, and as I said last week, Paul he, he could have just let it go. Move on, Paul. But Paul's got one more thing that he needs to say. He quote in, in verse uh, Romans 9:13, He says, "Just as it is written, "Jacob I loved, but Esau, I hated. Jacob I loved, but Esau, I hated now." He's quoting Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 through 3. Now, let me, before I read this to you, I want you to understand this is in the book of Malachi, which, by the way, is the last book in the Old Testament. Esau and Jacob are, are, are they're born way back in Genesis. So we're talking literally hundreds of years have gone by. Jacob and Esau are long dead. This this Malachi was a prophet to Israel. He was a prophet uh, to, to the nations of that day. So those boys are long gone. These are the nations that come from them. So let's read this verse. This is uh, God talking to Israel. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. And you say, how have you loved us? Now, this is really interesting. I can just tell you, if I told my boys, I've loved you, and they said to me, how have you loved us? What do you think I'd say? Hello, I changed your diapers. Right? Right? I fed you, I watched over you, I protected you, I threw baseballs to you, I, I, I taught you how to change a tire, I took you fishing, I prayed for you, I paid a bunch of money for you to go through college, right? I would say all those kind of things. So wouldn't you expect God to say to Israel, didn't I deliver you from slavery? Didn't I, didn't I part the Red Sea for you? Didn't I feed you with manna in the wilderness? Didn't I give you the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai? Didn't I give you a land, the promised land flowing with milk and honey? We would expect God to, to, to list off all the things that He's done, but that's not what He does. Watch what He says. I've loved you, says the Lord. And you say, this is Israel saying, how have you loved us? And this is His answer. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? declares the Lord. Yet I love Jacob. But Esau I have hated. Again, this is in Malachi. Now, I want to look at the first part of that. When God says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? What's he saying? He's saying, wasn't Esau in the same womb as Jacob? Didn't Esau have the same mother and the same father as Jacob? Wasn't Esau even the older brother by law? He should have received the inheritance. But then he goes on to say, but Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. You see, when God has a chance to tell some to Israel how he loved them, he doesn't list all the things that he did for them over the years. He goes all the way back to the very beginning and says, I chose Jacob. I chose Jacob. That was God's reasoning for how he loved them. Now, he makes the statement, by the way, that's God's statement, Jacob I love, Esau I've hated. I want to look at both sides of this. Because I know everybody wants to focus on the Esau I hated, right? Because that's the hard part. That's the controversial part. What does that mean? But you can't understand that part unless you understand this part. So we're going to look at this first. What does God mean when he said, Jacob, I love? Well, let's go back two weeks ago. You remember two weeks ago, we're in Romans chapter 8. We're at the very last verses. Paul says nothing can separate us from the love of God, right? And we talked about love when we asked the question, what is love? And what we saw is that biblical love is not based on feelings or emotions. Now, I said then, doesn't mean it's devoid of feelings or emotion or affection, but it doesn't require those things. Biblical love is an act of your will. It is a choice you make. Of your own free will. Remember our scriptures? Luke chapter 6. Jesus said this. Love your enemy. Well how do I do that Jesus? Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. There is nothing in that statement about affection. Or feelings. Or emotion. He never expects us to feel good about somebody that's abusing us. Or hating us. Or doing bad things to us. That, that would be impossible to feel good about that person. He doesn't ask us to. That That is totally divorced, if you will, from feelings and emotions. It is a choice that you make. Just make a choice. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who abuse you. That's love. John fourteen fifteen. The same is true for God. If you love me, Jesus said, keep my commandments. I don't always feel... Some days I feel like... Real emotional about God. and other days, days, I feel like he's a million miles away. But that doesn't mean I still I love him. How? By keeping his commandments. Same is true in a marriage. If husband, love your wife. How? Give yourself up for her. Give yourself up for her. That Every time love is mentioned, it's always, tell, it's always about verbs. It's always about actions. So what we saw is our definition of love. Love is a decision of our free will to act for the good of another. To act for the benefit of another. That's what love is. That's what biblical love is. Now, what about God's love for us? Well, it's no different. Go go back to the Bible. Search on uh, scriptures that talk about the love of God. You'll always see action. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us and while we were still sinners, Christ what? Died. 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a payment for our sin. Action, action, action. It's not based on feeling. It's not based on emotion. It is a choice that God makes of His own free will to act for someone's benefit. Now, you need to understand that. Okay? Okay? Jacob, I loved. What does that mean? Does that mean God is sitting up there and he's got these mushy feelings for Jacob and he's got these angry, bitter feelings for... No, no, it's not about that. God just made a choice. When he says, I love Jacob, he said, I made a choice to act for his benefit, to act for his good. And Jacob is born and he begins to live his life and God follows him, and God acts for his benefit all the days of his life. Now, listen to me. Please don't make this mistake. I've seen people talk about this, and they'll say, well, you know, God knows everything that's going to happen. I'm sure he looked ahead in time and saw Jacob, and he he knew Jacob would be a better man than Esau. He knew Jacob would be a better leader than Esau. He knew Jacob would be a better patriarch than Esau. No, he wasn't. Jacob was not a nice person. You know, I've often said, as a man, if I had to hang out with one of those two boys, I'm hanging with Esau. Esau's out hunting. Esau's having everybody over for barbecues. Jacob's in the kitchen cooking pies with his, with his mama. I want to hang with Esau. I don't want to hang with Jacob. The, the, go read the story. Go back and read Genesis. He's a deceiver. He, he takes advantage of his brother at, at a weak moment to basically weasel his birthright away from him. He goes into his own father, puts goat hair, when his dad was blind, puts goat hair on his arm, so his dad would think that it was Esau, and his dad blessed him. When Esau wanted to kill him, and his mom sent him away to her home country to to hide out, he spent the next few years with a man named Laban, both of those guys trying to get advantage of one another, always finagling, always trying to get the upper hand. When he finally comes back and he's, he's, he's got this huge family and he's got all these people and he's coming back to the promised land, what does he do? Does he get out front on a horse like a patriarch and ride to meet Esau? No, he put everybody else in front of him. He got in the back. And of course, he finally gets back there and he's got all these kids and he makes the exact same mistake his father did. Isaac showed, I mean, Isaac showed preferences to Esau over Jacob. Jacob turns right around and he shows preferences to the boy named Joseph. And he creates jealousy and spite and envy in his own family that leads to terrible consequences. Here's what you have to understand about Jacob. Jacob is a sinner. Jacob is a sinner, just like Esau. Just like you and I. Did he deserve the wrath of God? Yes. Did he deserve the judgment of God? Yes, but God's mercy followed him all the days of his life, folks. That's called grace. That's called grace. He didn't. That's what grace is: undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor. He wasn't a nice guy. He had issues. He had problems. He had. He wasn't a great father. He had all kind of. But yet God loved him by choosing to act for his benefit, and he showed him mercy all the days of his life. And we call that grace. Now, let's flip the coin over. But Esau, I hate it. Now, by the way, there's, a, there's a, a website out there called BibleHub.com. And you can go to this website and type in a verse, and it'll show you every translation, like 50 translations of that verse. Every single translation, it says hate, 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 hate. Hey. It's, not, it's not a mistranslation. It's not. It's exactly what it says. Now, that, does that bother anybody here, by the way? Just can you let me know? Does it bother anybody here? Bothers me. I don't like that word. I wish you. Why did you use that word? So what does he mean? Well, obviously, this is the hard part, right? So what does this mean? I'm going to give you two things that I hope will help you. I know it helped me. The first thing that you need to understand that this is all about contrast. It's all about contrast. In fact, I think it would help us to go back uh, into the New Testament and look at another example. And this is the words of Jesus himself. Luke 14, Jesus said this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his own mother, and his wife, and his children, and his brothers, and his sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. How many of y'all find that to be hard? See, it's not just Romans 9. It's not just Malachi 1. This is Jesus himself saying that. You want to come serve me, you've got to hate your father, your mother, your sisters, your children, your your brothers, your, your own life. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? Listen, clearly, clearly. Jesus does not mean that we are to have angry, bitter feelings toward our parents or toward our wives or toward our brothers or mothers or sisters or children. After all, aren't we told one of the Ten Commandments is honor your father and your mother? Aren't we told husbands love your wives, love one another, love your neighbor, love even your enemies? Obviously, he does not mean here that we are to have some kind of angry, bitter feelings toward these people. That would be, uh, again, the exact opposite of what he teaches elsewhere in the Bible. So what does he mean? It's all about contrast. It's all about contrast. You see, Jesus wants disciples who love him to such an extent that... In some ways, their treatment of their mother and father and brother and sister can almost look like hate. Now, let me explain what I mean. This is very difficult for us here in in modern America. Very difficult. But let me tell you, there are people in the Middle East, in Muslim-dominated areas, that understand completely what that means. There are people in Africa, in Muslim-dominated areas of Africa, who understand there are ex-Amish people, who understand exactly what that means. You see, there are people who decide to follow Jesus. I was just watching an Amish guy the other day who left the Amish. And, and, and when he left, his, ba- his family cut him off, shunned him. He's dead to them. And they said to him, why do you hate us so? Why do you hate our way of life? Why do you hate your family? Why do you hate your culture? Why do you hate your upbringing? And what do you think he said? I don't hate you, I just love him so much more. See, that's exactly what Jesus means. You 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 can't but come follow Jesus, and then when your dad or your mom or your wife says, Well, I I, I it gets angry with you, you say, Well, I'm gonna back out of this thing. Jesus said, I don't want anybody like that. You count the cost, you follow me, I'm first. I'm above everybody else, even your own family. This is all about contrast. Our love for Him should so far exceed our love for other things, even other people, even our own family, that the contrast between those, is like love and it's like hate. You see, the exact same idea is at work in Malachi 1 and Romans 9. Listen to me. I don't know if you can get this. I'm still trying to get it. But God's love for Jacob is so incredible, so above and beyond that his treatment of Esau looks like hate. Are you with me? It's all about contrast. You see, he chose Jacob. He didn't choose Esau. He blessed Jacob all the days of his life. He never blessed Esau. He shows mercy to Jacob all the days of his life. He never shows mercy to Esau. See, one is clearly being given incredible preferential treatment. Now listen to me. The other is being left alone. The other is just being left alone. That's all. Now let me say one other thing here, and we'll come back to that in a moment. We need to understand that that Malachi, for example, was written probably some 3,000 years ago. And we have to understand in that day and time, in that Jewish culture, if we were writing this today, probably wouldn't use this language. But in that culture, in that era, this this was perfectly acceptable. People clearly understood that what was being talked about was, was contrast, not implying that God is looking at Esau in some type of insulting way. So that's the first point I want to make. Here's the second point I want to make. Just as love, not an emotion, not based on that, love is a choice to act for someone's benefit. In this case, hate is just the opposite. It's a choice not to act. You see, God didn't choose Esau. He didn't make a decision that I'm going to act for for Esau's benefit. He just left him alone. That's all he did. Now, what you need to understand is Esau is born. And Esau begins to make choices. And Esau is a fallen human being. And he begins to sin. And he is a sinner. He's just like his brother Jacob. And by the way, just like you and I. Does he deserve God's judgment? Yes. Does he deserve God's wrath? Yes. You see, Esau is completely free to choose God anytime he wants to. But he never does. And, and he makes all his decisions freely. When he sells his birthright for a cup of soup, that's him. God's not making him do that. He's doing that. That is his own free choice to sell his birthright for a cup of soup. He does that, not God. So he's a sinner. He's not a good person. He's like Jacob, right? He's got issues. He's got problems. He's got all kinds of things going. The only difference is God's mercy does not follow Esau. He just leaves him alone just leaves him alone. God permits him to go on in his sins. And by the way, what does sin do? It steals and it kills and it destroys. See, if if someone is just left alone in their sin, this is what happens. And the result of that sin is is felt not only in Esau's life, but in his descendants as well. He would go on to, 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 to found a nation called Edom. He had several sons. I don't know how many. They became, it became a great nation. They became great princes. But the hand of God was not on that nation. God never blessed Esau. He never blessed his descendants. And by the way, where is the house of Esau today? Anybody see a, a country called Edom on the map anywhere? It's gone. It, it's, it's, it's in the dustbin of history. But Jacob, who was renamed to Israel... Anybody ever heard of that? Isn't that an incredible? Think, think about that for a moment. God chose Jacob, showed him. I said, I'm going to act for your benefit, and three thousand years later, we're still talking about him. Still talking about him. What, what, what kind of magnanimous love and favor and grace is this that God is pouring out on this man? Now let's go back to Malachi. I want to read the whole... Remember what I said a while ago? that This is about the nations. This is The boys are long dead when this is brought up. But I want to go back and read the whole thing for you. Malachi 1, 2 through 5. I have loved you, says the Lord. And you say to me, well, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom, and that's the, the nation that's, that came from him... If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I'll tear it down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry. You see, Esau was a sinner. His children became sinners. The nation that he founded grew into a place that the Bible calls the wicked country. And what you need to understand, was God against Edom? Absolutely but it wasn't because of some kind of ill will. It's because of their sin. See, sin is what separates us from God. Not only you and I, but Esau as well. He made his own way. He made his own choices. He became what he wanted to be. And in the end, the nation that he founded was known as the wicked country. Now, I need to address something here. i got about ten more minutes. And I just need to address something very quickly that often comes up with Romans 9.13. And that is this. Can this passage mean something else? See, I've told you that God is, is choosing children of flesh and children of promise. Can this mean something else besides that? Well, some people would say, yes, it does. They would say that Romans 9 is all about God choosing nations, not people. Okay? So let me give you a quote. This is an article uh, from Dr. Rick Flanders. He is a staff evangelist with First Baptist Church of Bridgeport, Michigan, I believe. So this was an article I read several years ago. And I I want you to read what he says about this verse. He says this, Romans 9 reminds the reader of God's choices in regard to the forefathers of the nation Israel. He chose Isaac over Ishmael to receive the blessing of Abraham and thus be a forefather of the chosen nation that would bring Christ into the world. He chose Jacob over Esau to continue the family line that would develop into the nation Israel. In both of these cases, God chose the secondborn over the firstborn. His choice is not based upon any merit in the lives of those chosen because he is God. He's allowed to do what He pleases. But notice, the passage is not talking about Jacob's eternal salvation or about Esau's salvation or damnation. It is about God's choice in the makeup of the Messianic and Israelite lines. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated is a quotation from the first chapter of Malachi written many years after both men had died and is clearly about the nations that descended from them. Now, let me say a couple things. First of all, I absolutely agree. Malachi 1 is about Israel and Edom. That, I, I, I clearly agree to that. That's, that's what those, that passage is about. It's referring to those countries. I also agree that God's choosing of Isaac, I'm, I'm sorry, of Jacob over Esau had a direct effect on their descendants and eventually on the nations that, that came from them. I, I certainly agree with that. And let me say, by the way, I also completely understand why some people want this to mean nations and not people. I get it. Because when we say God's choosing people, that makes us terribly uncomfortable. But if you say God's choosing nations, well, okay, who cares? Are you with me? Does anybody have a problem with God choosing nations? I don't. Anybody got a problem with God choosing people? Oh, yeah that thought because we're fixing to show you something. So let me just say this. I disagree with Dr. Flanders. I'm sure he's got a doctor in front of his name, so I'm sure he's way smarter than I am. But on this case, I have to disagree with him. Um, I don't think Romans 9 is at all about choosing nations. And I'm going to give you four reasons why. I'm going to start from the least important to all the way down to the most important reason. Here's the least important When you say this is about God choosing nations, it really makes the issue worse. This is what I mean. If you believe that there's injustice in God by choosing one man and not another, then how much more injustice is there if God chooses an entire country and then doesn't choose an entire country? Do you understand a a, a nation is not a car? It's not a house. It's not an inanimate object. A nation is what? It's people, hundreds of thousands of millions of people. So the choosing of a nation is just choosing of people. So I don't see how that answers the issue if you think there's injustice with God. But that's the least important. Here's the second one. It's completely out of context. Let's go back to verse 3 where Paul lays out the problem. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ, For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. The problem that Paul has got is that there are Jews out there, right? And these Jews who are members of this this chosen people, these individual people are cut off from Christ, accursed, and lost because they have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what creates this entire crisis. And what Paul has been trying to show the whole time is that out of this nation, he is choosing certain ones as children of promise and not choosing others. That's what the whole thing was all about. Number three, and these are the two most important ones. There are times in the Bible where you'll go to a passage of Scripture and, and the author will write something, and you have to kind of figure out what they mean, right? Because they don't really tell you. You kind of got to figure it out. This is not one of those cases, Paul has already told us what he meant in verse 8. He said, in case we don't get it, this means. Well, he says, when I'm talking about Isaac and Ishmael, when I'm talking about Jacob and Esau, this means, he says, it's not the children of flesh who are, say it with me, the children of God. He's talking about believers and unbelievers. He's talking about people of faith and people of unbelief. He's talking about children of God and children of flesh. He's not talking about nations. He's not talking about... Nations can't be children of God. That's the whole problem here. The, the, the nation of Israel is not just by uh, guaranteed to be children of God. Okay? And, and by the way, you can't change that language either because we just came out of Romans 8 where Paul says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He means the same thing here. He's talking about individuals. Now, number four, and this is the most important one. This is how I know that I know that I know that Paul is not talking about nations, that he's talking about people. Okay? Here's how I know. Let's go back to Dr. Flanders' article. Did you notice what he said? He said in both of these cases... Now, by the way, he believes God is choosing nations. And this is what he said. In both of these cases, God chose, and because He's God, He can do what He pleases, right? In other words, He has no problem with God choosing nations, neither do I. I got no issue with that whatsoever. But let's say for one moment, everybody here, just for one moment, let's just say that God is choosing individual people. What would our response be? Come on, somebody. What's your response? Anybody else? Separate yourself out of it for a moment. It's not about you and me. It's about this idea that God is choosing one person and He doesn't choose another. He does it when in the womb, before they've done anything good or bad, before time begins. You telling me that's not your response? That's not fair. That's not right. That's not fair. That's, my, that's how I feel. That's not fair. Now, let me tell you something. Paul has preached this on street corners and synagogues and coliseums all over Asia. And every time he preaches this, he gets the same response. That's not fair. That's why the very next verse in verse 14, Paul says this. What shall we say then? Is there injustice with God? See, that's how I know he's talking about people. Because if he's talking about nations, nobody cares. But Paul's heard it over and over and over again. He knows what people think. That's that's unjust. So he just goes right ahead and answers what every one of us deep down is feeling. That's not fair. And then he gives his reason. Is God unfair? He says, by no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, we're going to talk about these verses next week. By the way, it doesn't get any easier. (laughs) I hate to break your bubble, but it doesn't get any easier. Paul just keeps digging it deeper and deeper and, and deeper. But we're going to do something a little bit different here tonight. I'm going to ask you to do something. I thought a lot about this. I want us in just a moment to, 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 if you will, to come to the altar and spend just a few minutes at the altar, if you can. Or you can, if you can't, you can just stay right where you are. But we've talked about two things tonight. We've talked about Jacob I loved and Esau I've hated. And I understand that second part is just so hard, right? I, I get it. That's the controversial part. That's the part that's difficult to grasp. But can I ask you for just a moment to set that aside and let's go back to the first part. Jacob I loved. Because see, if you're here tonight and you're a child of God, you're Jacob. You're Jacob. You see, you were a sinner. You got problems and issues going on in your life. If people knew some of the things you think and say, they wouldn't wouldn't want to be around you half the time. We all got problems. We all got issues. Yet God's mercy has followed you all the days of your life. God loved you. God made a choice to to, to set His favor on you. It's called grace. We are Jacob. And and I just think tonight as we come into something like this, and yes, it's deep, and yes, it's heavy, and and you you may very well disagree with me on that second part, but folks, you can't disagree on the first part. That's what love is. That's what grace is. God choosing to set his unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor on you. Even though you got problems and issues and sin, his mercy is just following you all the days of your life. And I just feel like tonight that we just need to take a few minutes to just celebrate that. To just come and say, God, thank you. Thank you for choosing me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for pouring your grace out on me. I think there's just something about affirming that in our heart. I don't want this to be, this, this can't just be a theological thing we go into and have, well, that was interesting. If we just do that, we, we missed it. I want to walk out of here thinking, man, man, he loved me that way. He chose me that way. He poured his grace out on me that way. So if you will, if you'll join me at the altar for just a, a few minutes, we won't, be here, uh, we won't be here long. Just take some time, if you will, to um, just affirm that, celebrate it in your own way. Just tell God how much you appreciate and how thankful you are for what he's done for you. Pastor Henry, if you, when you get ready, will you close us in, in prayer?
2: Our Heavenly Father, we bow before you tonight and we are humbled. By the thought that you would love us, so undeserving, and yet you've poured your love out on us. Lord, all we know to say is, thank you. Thank you for your amazing love. Thank you for your amazing plan. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you gave us <laughs> you gave us that call. And we don't even know why. We don't know why we're not dead and in hell today. We don't know why we're not out in the world. uh, Blaspheming your name. Except that you had mercy on us. And it was your goodness. It was you. It was your goodness. That led us to repentance. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Lord, we bow before you. Oh, Lord. Lord, I think of that song, Who am I that a king would bleed and die for? Who am I that he would say, Not my will thine for? That to an old rugged cross he would go. For who am I? Oh, Lord. Lord, here in this church, at River of Life, We bow before you and we acknowledge your word. Even the parts that don't sit well with us, we acknowledge your word. And father, we bow before you to say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus name. Amen.
0: Thank you again for listening to the river of life podcast. If this message has touched you today, or if you need someone to pray with you, please let us know. You can call us at 850-926-1200 or send an email at info at riveroflifefl.com. We also encourage you to check out River of Life live this Wednesday at 7 p.m. in Crawfordville. Please visit rolcrawfordville.com for more information and directions.